Hey everyone, my name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. I hope that you are all enjoying your Cyber Monday, the day of superfluous buying. And on this day, I wanted to introduce you to a young man who is doing a lot to give back to his community of San Luis Obispo. It's a young man who I met by complete chance while I was down in San Luis Obispo making a short film about the director of the California Coastal Commission named uh, Dr. Charles Lester. And he was being fired um, by the commission, and there was a lot of controversy around the reasons for it. So I decided to drive down, make a short film on it. I was down in the courthouse. There was a group of skaters in the, the corner, some kids who looked like they were cut in class to be there. And I thought, hey, I want to get their opinion. So I introduced myself uh, to one kid, he said, Hey, my name's Corey. And I said, why are you here? And Corey commenced to explain the situation with such deft articulation that I, I was kind of baffled. Um, and I thought to myself, I need to get to know this kid because he's, he's someone special. Um, that's all I knew. So I got his contact and then did a little bit more research about who this kid is. And I learned that Corey Jones is an environmental activist as well as shredding skater. And he is the co-founder of an organization called One With Nature. One With Nature works as an environmental marketing group that focuses on education, outreach, and reform. And Corey serves as their lead for business development and their primary spokesperson for environmental legislation. And in the past year, One With Nature has been a major player in banning styrofoam in two Central Coast communities. One With Nature... Um, also is working with San Luis, uh, San Luis Obispo County food vendors so that they will only serve straws upon request, which will set a national precedent that has already received an endorsement from the county's Integrated Waste Management Authority, and it looks like he's going to finalize that matter uh, in January of 2017. So he is a mover and shaker, to say the least. And he's a, he's a straight shooter, um, so I decided to go down to San Luis Obispo and have him on the podcast. Uh, we talk a lot about um, why he does what he does, talk about a few near-death experiences that he has had. Um, and, man, he, he's a guy who you get the, um, the strong feeling that he's going to do something very, very big with his life. Um, I do apologize for a couple audio issues with this podcast. This is one of the first ones that I recorded, and it was on an earlier setup. So I apologize for that, um, but it, it should be fine. Um, if you like this podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes. It takes two minutes, and it really helps me out. Please enjoy this conversation with my man, Mr. Corey Jones. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles 
and thumbs up. Thumbs up. So what we were just talking about is San, yeah. San Luis Obispo and like what it is about this place that might kind of register those high attitudes or high ideals. First off, like I was saying, the open space resources of this area, there, there's too many outlets for us to go outside and actually connect and see like the natural beauty of the world. And for that reason, you're going to place a pretty high value on it because it gives so much to your life. That even refers back to what I was talking about when you, when you approached me in the CCC hearing. Yeah. We were just talking about like coastal development and open space preservation and things of that nature. Like when you're here and for me in my childhood, as I would go outside and look at all these natural resources, like I would see these open spaces and see these hills and really just appreciate them for what they are. And even as a Grom, like I would have that fear of like, damn, like this place is going to get developed. And I, and I'm not against development entirely. I understand that's, that's just going to happen within society, but it's making an effort to make sure that goes down in a manner where it's, it's honest. You know, it's just not this corporate development for corporate development or for maximizing profits or anything of that nature. It's more like, how do we want to grow this community? What kind of culture do we want to remain here? And what we're doing is just really instill, or not instill, but instill uh, just that value that we have for our natural resources. Because yeah. I honestly think taking that away and doing too much development or doing it in a manner where we're going to rob like future generations of like these resources that we've had and how much value it's given to our lives. I just truly think that would be wrong. How old are you again? 23. 23. Yeah. What got you to think this way? It's been a slow, slow evolution. Like I was not raised with the higher environmental consciousness. I was, I loved going outside. Yeah. You're you know, a skater kid. You want to be a pro skater? Yeah. Kind of a deal. But so my father, was actually, he's a carpenter. He's a union carpenter of like 35 years at this point, but he was born in Alaska, lived there until he was eight, then raised in Oregon. His father was a commercial fisherman, so my father was also a commercial fishing by the age of like 12. Okay, let's take a breather real quick. Yeah. Okay, here we go. So he was commercial fishing by like the age of 12, and then he was a logger, but either way, just this really gnarly, just like kind of just countryman kind of yeah. guy. And when I was a Grom, he would just take me fishing starting at like age three. And that was like every freaking weekend. And I was just obsessed with it. So out of that, like we would always just paddle around in our old like red town, like red town canoe. I believe that was the, yeah, that's the name of it. Right out here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis, Port Slow. We'd also go out to Lopez Lake and the hills of like Arroyo Grande. And then, I mean, we would go kind of all over. He would take me up to Oregon. He would take me to the Sierras just on these fishing trips. And like, if I wasn't fishing or I wasn't skating, I was watching like OLN. I was watching Outdoor Life Network, watching like fishing shows or hunting shows. Yeah. I was just like obsessed with that kind of lifestyle. And that was, that was like everything. I remember the first time I actually went ocean fishing was right out here at Port Slow. I think I was seven years old. Very first time I went, I remember I was like, dad, am I going to catch anything? And I really wanted to catch a lingcod. I really wanted to catch a halibut. And I was like tripping, like if I would or not. And I ended up getting like a lingcod right off the bat. So I was so stoked. And then a few hours later, we headed a little bit South towards Shell Beach. So there's this rock that sits about two miles out. It's like 40 feet of water. And my grandfather was with us too. It was like one of the last times I went fishing with him. And uh, I ended up catching like a 22 pound halibut. And that was like the biggest one that like had been caught in, like off Port Slow for that year. And I was just so like hyped from that point. And I just, that just like really developed my enthusiasm for the outdoors to where like, even though I wasn't going on backpacking trips or anything of that nature yet, I had this ideal that I would want to as I grew up and like became a man. Yeah. So 
as the te- as the teen years arose, like we got the freedom to get our licenses. You know what I mean? And then you're able to explore where you're from. And in the process of doing that, my friends and I had a hunger to do that. Like we really were just like, oh, like let's go find this watering hole. Let's go here this weekend. Let's go here. And that was just such a consistent process that honestly, we just really began to fall in love with where we were from without even really knowing it. Yeah. It was more just like trying to get stoked, always kind of seeking like the new like adrenaline rush kind of deal and just trying to do things that were cool and keep ourselves entertained. But by just doing that over the course of years and really understanding like how special this place was, we just really fell in love with it. Yeah. For for those people listening who haven't ever been to Big Sur, it's just north of San Luis Obispo. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. I've been everywhere and it is like nowhere else in the world Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it it truly is and like i remember i didn't really even get that connected to big star like i drove through it a few times when i was younger but it really wasn't until like 18 19 when i realized how accessible it was for the day i started doing day trips so consistently just going up there so consistently and understanding like man this has so much value to us and then understanding like Oh, I want to figure out a way in which I can make a contribution to like preserving and protecting these kind of things and encouraging other people to get out here because it was more and more just clicking with this that like people just didn't realize like the value. Now, I know when I say that people are like, well, what's the real economic value? But I mean, internally and like for societal purposes and the fact that where we are now, just on like a global scale with 7 billion people and the way media and so many different things function to where people aren't really even connected to the fact that we're a part of this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like for some people, I legitimately don't even think they realize that we're a part of nature. Yeah. Like, and, and when, when I have that thought, it just kind of trips me out. So yeah, I mean, places like Big Sur and things like that, that just, that's what clicked it for myself and my friends. And it's like, okay, let's see if we can do something about this. And then, I mean, through skating and things like that, like we're down to take risks. You know what I mean? Like we we don't really want to be the guys out there that are like, hey, don't use straws or like, hey, don't do this. Not trying to be because a lot of people just don't get it. So like, oh, what are you trying to advance? But the second you know the background behind it, it's like it's really not that hard of a correct, like a, not that hard of an adjustment. Like yeah. it's something that if we're able to realize that as kids that really are just that were raised as consumers, the kids that really are just concerned about skateboarding and doing all these things that aren't these gnarly hippies to be like hey, this is something that like society, like on a societal level, we should all make an effort to get away from because if we carry on down this path and it goes unquestioned, there's going to be some serious implications. There already are. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty gnarly. So you're 23 now. You're obviously very purpose-driven. If you look back on your life when you're old and gray, what are a few of those big peak moments in your life that have taken place so far that you think you'll really remember? Uh, one, one of the biggest in regards to trying to like live for a purpose, I guess, would be at uh, age 18, I moved out with three friends that are older than me. Yeah. And um, one of them was diagnosed with cancer after about like three months of living with him. And his name was David King. He's, on a, he's such a good guy, such a ripper, on, like on a surfboard, on a wakeboard, on a skateboard, and just next level, just such good style. And then aside from that, as, as cliche as it sounds, like he was like the best person we all knew. He was that guy that taught you how to treat other people. Like he followed the kindergarten golden rule of treat others like you'd like to be treated and just held good on that in all situations. And you can try and model that, but like the actual practice of that is a pretty difficult thing. But he got diagnosed with cancer when I lived with him and we didn't really know how severe it was. 
Like it was, it was like, okay, Dave got cancer. But like at, what he didn't tell us is at the time he was told he had two months to live. He was at stage four and, uh, he made it over a year, he made it over a year. And through that whole process, like he battled it without any, any complacency. He just went through it. He maintained his spirit. He was still talking about skating, all the things that he enjoyed, had his mind on what he was going to be doing with his life once he beat this. And he got to a point where like, okay, he's going to do it. But he got sick right before like his last chemo. And in that process, like the cancer just kind of came back and it metastasized and it spread to his lungs. And I got a call one day right after I took this like econ test, like my freshman year of college. And like, it, it was just known that he was going to pass within like the next day wow. or two. So I, I jammed up to Davis with like two of my really good friends and we, we were there for his like final moments. And he was still, he was still conscious, like conscious. He could still communicate. And honestly, some of the last things he talked to me about were like skating and just like, he was just, he just maintained who he was and his spirit was still so alive. This is like just so alive and unbroken. Yeah. And like he, he accepted what he was about to face in just such a peaceful and graceful manner that like it just taught me kind of so much about how to try and conduct yourself. Like I still am so far from getting to the level that he got to, but it's it's something to kind of strive for and it's an example and it's something to refer to. I mean, I never thought I'd have a tattoo, but I got this like two days later. And wow. my father gave me such a good anti-tattoo talk right before his like, son. You know, you, you carry your friends and the lessons you learn with the scars you, like, get throughout your life. Yeah. And that's all you really need. You don't need to go put any damn markings on your body. And I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. And mm -hmm. I wasn't going to get it. And I went down to tell the artist who was drawing this up for me, like, I'm a no-go. But then I saw it and I was like, slap it on me. Like, I'll yeah. take it. But having that happen, that's actually what led me from a point where I was about to go to UCSB or Cal Poly for political science with a concentration in pre-law. I was going to go be a lawyer, but like I was saying, that's just something I was going to, I was, I was able to tell people like, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer and it sounded good. There was a title attached to it as something I thought I could have been successful in, but it was like, is that really what you want to do by any means? Is that like who you are? And then I kind of did ran the math. I'm like, do you want to be like 25 with like $150,000 in debt for a title that you really don't want to do work over the course of your life that you really don't want? So David's father approached me with an opportunity. He's a superintendent for this ironworking company called Bragg. They do like 500 million annually. And he's just such a nice guy and so passionate about what he does that it was such an easy sell. He's like, you like being outside. Like you like, like I can tell you have a high standard for yourself and you want to work. Like I think you'll kill it within this. Like it's a badass field. Like you should come to work for me. And my friend Chase, who's someone I've skated with over the years and was also good friends with David and I, he extended the opportunity to him as well. So I had like a best friend to enter iron working into. And initially we were super stoked on it. We went down to Vandenberg air force base and like we were working on this launch tower. Like it was called slick six right on the coast of the Pacific is 22 story launch tower. And we were doing a retrofit to get it ready for actual like rocket to launch out of initially. I was just like, is this James Bond? And you were welding steel. So I wasn't doing the welding so much. I was helping with some of the connections. Then we were also doing a retrofit resheating the whole building because on the coast, those launch towers, due to the fact that the thick marine layers, it rushed really quick. So we were just resheating the entire building. But one of the coolest moments of that actually, <laughs> it was so damn funny. So we're up on this swing stage, probably like, uh, like 15 stories up, but they painted this huge American flag across the entire side of the tower. But for the stars, they were actually 
bolting up like two like two by two like stars and my friend and i got to bolt those stars like onto this tower and it was just like we've always had that little like kind of joke of just the intense american you yeah. know like, hey, okay america that kind of guy so we're up there just bolting on these stars and just as these like union iron workers like launching <laughs> bolting stars like, yeah. on a launch tower for a rocket ship on an air force base like looking at the pacific and it was just like what the hell is this but that was that was a pretty cool experience but as i carried down on that path i got to a point where like i was down in lancaster so not not to knock a community by any means but just not my ideal place you know not really not natural features to get you stoked or anything like that we're living down there to be a steel just, worker so i was i was not like fully living there but i was living in a hotel room okay. you know what i mean like over the weekend kind of deal and uh so while I was just down there in that process, like I was working five days a week, like living in a hotel room. Saturdays, I was having to go to LA and be there by 7am. And I live three and a half hours away from there. So I'd have to wake up at like 3.30, drive down there, go to this apprenticeship class, be out by three and drive back. And then on Sundays, in honor of my friends, like one year death, it fell on the date of like the second San Luis marathon. And everyone was kind of like running like a 5k in his honor. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'll run the marathon. So... I was just like on this gnarly like seven day week grind where it was like work, 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 drive to LA, go to some school that I didn't want to be at. And then Sundays run like 15 miles kind of deal. And through that process, I was just down in this hotel room, like really questioning, like, do you want to give like 30 years of your life to this? Like it's, it's kind of cool. It's pretty badass, but like the lawyer card gets me late every now and again. <laughs> yeah. But... I mean, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> but I mean, like, are you, I mean, are you, are you passionate about this? Like, is this where you want, like, you know what I mean? Do you want to try and sell out for security? And I'm not knocking anyone that goes like that kind of path, but for myself, it just didn't sit right. Yeah. Especially what led me in there was like the death of my friend, but it also taught me the fragility of life. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I watched him be there and then one breath later, not. Like life, like life can hang upon a breath. So in that sense, it made me realize that like I wanted to do something that was a little more like true to myself, something where I'd be using my mind and just figure out a way in which I could kind of contribute back to society. And I think for all of us, as we go through those kind of questions and that process within ourselves, we're not really sure. You know what I mean? You really don't know like, oh, what am I going to be or what am I going to do? But it's just, it was just a slow evolution. So what I did is I had like a five month window before I returned to school. And in that process, it just returned to what I love to do. I started skating again. You know what I mean? Like the marathon was done. I didn't have to worry about hurting myself so I could get back into skating. That got my stoke levels back up. And then I started like just kayaking and kayak surfing and fish, like just doing everything I really enjoyed again. And in that process, we were out at a local swimming hole, like I was telling you. And the whole concept behind One With Nature, like the seed of the whole idea was like planted. And then it was just so many conversations, so many meetings, so many just late nights of thinking like, what the hell is this going to be? And still, still in that process, but just two and a half, three years later, like here we are. And now it's like, okay, well, we've met some success. Like you and I are sitting, like, there's that, this is somehow like a free office space for us. And we're sitting like, yeah, we have a, Pacific. an insane view of the Pacific Ocean right now. Um, from the one with nature office space. Yeah. yeah. So in that sense, it's it's just been this gnarly like process of understanding like okay what do we value and just trying to stay true to those and just develop creative ideas that we can push and see where we can make like contributions for our community but i'd say one of the most influential things that has led me down a path of not just like okay like 
get your degree, go take a job, make some money, go like to kind of settle with like those expectations yeah. of what society puts on you and to really push for something a little more true to ourselves. Yeah. Game of Thrones and call it a life. Yeah. Um, was on, yeah, the past. Game of Thrones. No, no, but I mean, <laughs> but the, the passing, the passing of my friend David was one of the heaviest experiences. Yeah. Um, I also had a near death experience myself like a year, like about a year later. Oh, I was, yeah. uh, I was up at Carson Peak in the June Lake Loop region. Legion? <laughs> it's Game of Thrones. Uh, in the June Lake loop region and we climbed Carson Peak but the way in which we went about it wasn't like the primary trailhead we hiked up to this lake and the remainder of the way we had to like kind of go up like scramble up like a rock field where is Carson so it's right by Silver Lake and Gold Lake it sits like right in between the two and if you know where June Lake is it's like in the Mammoth Lakes region it's kind of yeah it's around that area but either way we we climb up to this first lake and then from that point there's no trail like the way we went so scramble up these weird rock fields and try and get around the back side of the mountain and then yeah and then up to the summit and from that point like we're there and we don't really think much about it and on the way back like we just kind of headed back a little bit and then cut down and I don't even know what we were thinking especially as I tell this story but my friends and I kind of like separated you know, like we started going down this thing. There were some loose rocks. So there were some friends above us. And I remember some rocks shooting down and almost tagging one of my friends. And if it like hit him, he probably would have like died. And we were just like laughing about it. And we just kind of keep going at like our own pace. And next thing I know, like I fully separated from all my friends. And I'm just climbing down these like shoots. It's like getting down this mountain as fast as possible. And these stoops, like shoots are pretty steep, but like super manageable. And I'm doing it in a manner that's kind of stupid. I'm on like my butt, you know what I mean? Like facing. like kind of Exactly. And just kind of scrambling on down, doing it at a pretty quick pace. And then I get to a point where like 150 or 200 feet below me, I see a point, like point where you can't see after it. It looks like it just kind of dropped. And I was like, damn, I'm already so far down this process. Like I might as well get there to look at it. So then I get there and look at it and I'm like, oh, this looks doable. It doesn't look too much more intense than everything I've been doing. So then I start going down that. And I get to a point where it goes smooth for probably like 10 feet. Like, even though that's not that big of a section, it was so steep. You start crawling. It was, well, it was just one of those things where like, I, I couldn't, like, so after that 10 foot smooth section, there was probably only like a foot and a half or two foot outcropping. And then it just carried on with its like steep self of the scramble that I was on. But I was like, oh God. Since I'm on my butt, I had a pack and it was already so steeped that I didn't have confidence in my ability to roll over like onto my stomach to climb back up. I was just like kind of stuck and I just didn't have faith that I was going to be able to drop 10 feet and land on a two foot like outcropping. So I was pretty much paralyzed, not paralyzed, but like paralyzed with fear where I was like, oh God, you just did this. Like you just led yourself to your like death and kind of sat there for a while, thought about my family. And it was gnarly because my friend Trevor was had a really similar experience where he was going down these shoots to the left and I just didn't realize it was there and he popped out below me and he's like, dude, this is so gnarly. And he like looked up and he saw me and I'm like, oh, I'm not okay. Kind of a deal. And how far up did you have to go back up? What, how far was above you? Um, to, the, to like get to, back to, to the top? Yeah, to get back to the top. <sighs> Probably like 1,500 feet. I don't know. So you've been sliding down this for a while. Yeah, I, well, yeah, exactly. I was, I was deep. Wow. I was on like the face. I was on like the face and just didn't even really realize it. And and then at this point, I was just sitting there for a while. But Trevor, like when he when he popped out and found me and he realized I like I wasn't okay, his presence kind of calmed me a little bit. And he got me to like 
slip off my backpack and I drop that and I watch that fall like 200 feet, just like bouncing off these rocks. And I'm like, oh, fuck. So I just got to a point where I had to like extend my arms behind me, lower my legs as much as possible. And then I made it to where I only had to drop like six feet. But like, I'm telling you, man, like the, this outcropping is like the width of this table. Okay. So it was like, like, like a three foot yeah, outcropping. Like, yeah. Like re- but like smooth and kind of slanted. And yeah. then it just carried on to like, it just kept vertical. Going. Yeah, pretty much. And from that point, I was like, I, I just, I just didn't have faith that I was going to stop. I was just yeah. like, you're going to hit and you're going to fall forward and you're yeah. just going to go. And this is you too. You're yeah. Like this risk I mean, risk taking yeah. skater athlete. No, yeah, I'm, I was just like, fuck, like, you just this is, just isn't gonna happen. Yeah. But like, what were you thinking about when you were there alone? <laughs> my family, my mom, and how like sad she was gonna be. Like, yeah, I mean, I one, you're like, I was disappointed in myself by just being like, you, oh, your arrogance. Like, you just didn't even think about like what you were really doing you do were just moving not thinking about consequences or anything like that and you just led yourself like to your death you know what i mean like and like this is just what you're gonna have to face so i sat there and just thought about my family for a little bit and like i was just so sad because i knew like how much it would rock my mom kind of deal and but like i said my friend trevor popped out and that's like kind of what got me like oh out of that like negative thinking because yeah. i like i was pretty much just accepting my death when i was there by myself how long were you there for Probably like 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but either way, I, like I said, I dropped my pack and then I like hung my arms as low as I possibly could and had to make like a six foot drop. And when I did, I got like lucky, dude. My, my left leg, my left ankle buckled and like rolled. And in the process of doing that, my right leg slipped off that ledge. But with my left ankle rolling, my leg folded and like, got caught and I like my butt smashed my ankle and then I fell back. So I was like, kind of like hanging off the edge like this, like this is my butt and my back and my legs are off or like my left leg was off. So you're you're basically hanging off. Yeah. And then, but but then from that point, like I was locked, but I mean like if my ankle didn't roll and my leg buckle and fold behind me to like catch me up on it, I would have just carried on off. So it was literally like I, I, I stayed alive by like my ankle rolling on me and folding behind me. It's literally to a point where it's like, holy shit, like that just how oh, okay. But then it's never so much adrenaline. You know what I mean? From oh, going yeah. <laughs> like my ankle was so fucked up and I just didn't even realize it. Like I had to still get off the mountain, but I was just like the heart was going so fast, I'm like, I'm alive. So I mean, from yeah, pretty like, dude. It was one of the gnarliest things, and it's like it, hard to convey because it's just like no, like I was I was convinced that I was dead, and like I should have died, but like my leg folded, and that like saved me somehow. Wow. So between my friend passing and that, it's more just like man, like if you're gonna be here, try and be here for a reason. Yeah. Like you have enough lessons, kind of throwing things like that at you, and. And what skating's taught me, and I'm sure what you've learned through like surfing, is like things are things are kind of possible if you're willing to go through some pain. Like dude, skating, I I always try to make like analogies that I've like learned solid life lessons through it that I didn't realize I was learning as a grom. But like, one, you understand some things are possible because other people have already done them. You know what I mean, and then so you just like envision that for yourself of like, can I do this, and kind of assess that. And sometimes you go for it and like you just get it. And you're like, oh, I had that in me, sick. And you just like kind of keep yeah. progressing down the path. Other times, like you go for it and you're going to eat shit. 
And then you're going to eat shit again and eat shit again. And it's like, how bad do you really want it? Like, what are you willing to endure to get it? But if you like persist at something long enough, you usually find out how to do it. And if you stick with it, next thing you know, you get that trick dialed and you just build from there and you become more and more. And like, I don't know, I just find, I found that to be like a really solid, just like foundation of building resilience for yourself in anything you do. Because what we're doing for one with nature, like I haven't made any fucking money off this, like at all. Like realistically, I've put in like eight grand while I've been going to school. You know what I mean? And I pay for school and do all these things. So it's more just like, this is just our intrinsic motivation of something that like, we know we can have a positive effect and contribution on our community. And we just really believe in the long-term vision of what we can produce. So we're just like, we're in it for years. Unless something like just absolutely stops us, there's like no intention of quitting. Yeah. But you kind of get... Well, skating does have a lot of life lessons in it um, that I found because I grew up skating as well. Um, one is that actually in needing to picture what it is that you're trying to do to mm-hmm. nail a trick. Whether mm-hmm. it's like you're going to try and nail a 10 stair or a new new trick on a ramp like you actually need to envision exactly. it in your mind um to go out and do it and yes that ability to endure pain and continue forward and get back up that staircase and do it again is one that a lot of people don't get in their yeah. childhood just it, that like and just ability to get hit and get back up exactly is solid i always attribute um my interest in, in surfing big waves like going up and surfing mavericks which i've been uh, really into in the last couple years from skating mm-hmm. because surfing most days you don't get that same adrenaline rush if you're just surfing a waist chest high day um, it's more just like oh yeah I'm going out having fun learning new tricks but skating I mean if you're trying to fling yourself off of a 10 stair yeah, or if not. you're trying to do a new trick on a big ramp there is fear involved and you more than anything need to commit mentally and tell yourself that you're going to fucking do it yeah exactly like, I'll, I'll show you some videos after this but like i mean i've hucked myself down like 19 stair rails and done like front flips like down and over the rail yeah and, like i mean i have fucked myself up i have like golf ball calcium deposits in my hips like permanent hematomas but at the same time like i feel good yeah you know what i mean and it's like something that when i progress at it like it just it gets you so stoked and it gets it's my mental release to carry on with everything else i do in life like right now as i'm going through this process with my like torn knee and not being able to skate luckily i was able to start surfing again like two weeks ago so i have some kind of outlet but i was going stir crazy luckily i was able to start surfing again like two weeks ago so i have some kind of outlet but i was going stir crazy for a month and a half man because i was just like i would maybe like start working some mornings at like 8 a.m on one with nature other things that we're doing and then have to go into my serving job at like 4 p.m. And I'd work to like 11 p.m. at night and then still have to get off, get a couple things like together and then structure the next day. And if I don't have like an outlet to really kind of push myself in a different manner and to just like get myself back into like motivated for the other things that I'm doing, life's hard. Yeah. Um, but skating in itself and like like you were talking about, just getting hit, I, I what I've realized is that where I've gotten to, like I had friends that were a lot more talented than me. And I mean, a lot more talented and could have taken it so far, but they just weren't that consistent with it. You know what I mean? Like they didn't skate every day or as they got into high school and some of those social pressures of like, yo, listen to some Mac Dre and like do this and shit like, you know what I mean? But like, but just getting caught off with like other social pressures and things like that, that like, at the time may have like helped you been identified as a little more cool, but like drew them away from something they cared about a lot. And then 
even gave them like influences that really like inhibited who the, who they could like could have become. I have friends that I know like would be touring right now. I'm not even saying like I expect them to or they had to, but it, it's one of those things where what I've learned through it is that I've gotten to a point where people are like, damn man, like you're really good at this. But it, like I've been doing it since I was four years old. I mean, like I had a window from like nine to 13 where I lived in the middle of nowhere and I just absolutely couldn't. But it's been part of my identity like since I was four years old and it's really shaped like who I am. And, and that's it, is the fact that I've stayed with it for so long that I've met some success with it. That I've gotten to a point where I'm able to be like, man, I'm pretty happy with what I've, like, what I've done with this. And it, not in the sense of like accreditations or anything of that nature, but more just within yourself of like being like 14 and seeing guys that are super good and like thinking of all these tricks being like, oh, I wish I could do that. And now just doing, doing that. And like doing that at a level where you never really imagined that you could get to. But just by staying with it, like you just take yourself to a whole new point. And it's like, man, if you bring that same kind of attitude just to life in general, like, like I don't, that's, that's like what, what amazes me now is like, how far can you go? One thing that, uh, one thing that, uh, has been a theme that I've noticed with a lot of, uh, successful people and very purpose driven people is a lot of them have had near death experiences when they were kids. Yeah. Um, a lot of, for a lot of people, it doesn't actually hit home unless it happens to you or happens to a close friend, mm-hmm. um, because you, you know, until you're in your thirties or something like that, I mean, until you're in your mid twenties, your frontal neocortex, which is your decision-making part of your brain doesn't even fully form. So mm-hmm. you, you literally don't think that you can die unless you see it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and I never thought about that until I was looking at my own life. Um, and when I was 14, I, I went down to Mexico and I almost died. I, I um, was down on a, a surf trip and I ruptured my appendix. And I thought that I had, um, I thought that I, I just had a, a bad stomach ache, like had um, food poisoning. Mm-hmm. And I was down there with my brother and my dad and um, my, one of my best friends. And on like day three, I started getting really, really sick. Mm-hmm. And they had to take me to a hospital. Um, this like sketchy Mexican hospital. They did an emergency operation on me. It was two weeks on, um, basically I was too sick to move or go back into the States. And I remember not actually knowing how close I was to dying until they told me after they basically Mm -hmm. said like I had one day to live. And I remember, um, my mom actually, which is what hit home so hard for me was like, when she saw me and saw how sick I was, like I was on death's doorstep and she just like hugged me, like grip, gripping hug kind of thing. And it it changed something in me of just recognizing the mortalness of us all. Um, And it's, it's, I thought it was worth mentioning because I, I always, I wondered like, with you, I mean, you're a skater kid, and um, I mean, I met you at the California Coastal Commission mm-hmm. meeting just randomly, and I was I was filming a little piece, mm-hmm. and I, I put the camera on you, and I was like wildly impressed at how articulate you were and how purpose driven you were, and it's cool to hear these stories and kind of see what was behind it. That's it. It's just been this really natural like process of just living this life and doing things that we've really enjoyed and life just throws lessons at you which you might not really realize are lessons but like 
there's so many available to us and like through my own near death experiences and just everything that's got that I've gone out and done that's gotten me stoked too and being able to share that with people and just having engaging conversations and realizing that you're able to make an impact on other people's lives it's like okay like how can we do that on a larger scale but then you also like through the journey of like self-education I mean I, I actually saw an Instagram post you made one day even though it was uh it was on a funnier level it was like uh, I forgot the name of the dude that posted, but it was about reading and like people don't read good books, like don't fuck them or something yeah. like that. But I mean, I love like all I'm all about reading. Yeah. I, I try and read nearly every day, if not every day, because I really believe in the process of like self education. Yeah. You're not a didact. Yeah, yeah, and thinking that you can learn a lot over the course of your life, and there's just so much to extract and like apply to your own life, and you realize that like everyone that's ever done anything, like we're all just people. You know what I mean? So if you're able to kind of like I didn't have a high level of self-belief. Like when I was in high school and stuff like that, like I was not a like a social butterfly or anything like that by any means. Uh, like, yeah. So I just had skating to kind of hold me like as my rock and give me some confidence through all the little like battles and things like that I was facing. And in no way did I expect myself to like be like what I am so far today. But I've just been able to develop a level of self-belief by reaching out and seeing like what other people have done and realizing that like there's a certain kind of way of thinking that like you, you can make some solid like leaps in your own life and by growing and becoming more and rather just than trying to change the world itself by just be like becoming more of like a more valuable person like being able to contribute more to other people's lives there's just more of an impact and more influence you can carry and that and that kind of carries over to society in gen general like the whole concept with the water bottle measure Tell me about this. Okay. So in February of 2016, I approached the San Luis Obispo City Council and I got them to agendize a measure in which they're going to do a slight, bland, bland, <laughs> slight ban on plastic water bottles and then also implement hydration stations throughout the city's infrastructure so people can carry around like canteens and reusable bottles conveniently. Now that was the primary push of the measure that I was going for because through all the conversations I had regarding like the environment and the waste stream of plastic water bottles and things like that is the preference for convenience is usually going to outweigh someone's environmental concern, at least for the typical citizen. Like for someone like myself, I'll make kind of like just irrational sacrifices of like, I'm not going to use that. Like I'll be eating somewhere and be like, I'm not going to use that plastic cup. Like, yeah. but it's just so I don't like feel that hypocrisy. But for the the typical person, that's not the case. And anytime convenience is going to outweigh that, so that's why I really push for the hydration stations. But what led me down that path was I just really learned the scale and the background of like the water bottle industry and understanding that it was one, it was something that wasn't even introduced until like 76. And initially that was just like glass water bottles. And then in 89, Pepsi and Coca-Cola got into the marketplace and they introduced the PET plastic bottle. And that, and from that point that just revolutionized the game. They also brought in huge money to like market and brand around that. And so then people from that point were just like, oh, this is the new thing. And now water bottles are like, like the water industry is the second most profitable in the beverage market generates like 60 billion globally and like 12 billion in the US. And then I also learned that around 75%, around like three quarters of those water bottles in the US aren't even being recycled. It's around like 38 billion annually. Yet we see like green leafs 
like on these water bottles. Three quarters of all the water bottles in, in the, the US. US are not being recycled or they're not recyclable. They're not being recycled. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, cause people aren't throwing them in the Yeah, it, that's just issue of consciousness and okay. things like that too. But so many people are like, oh, I mean, it's recyclable and stuff like that. But the actual reality is the majority aren't even being recycled. So when I learned about that and I heard that number, that was so staggering that I was like, man, people aren't even thinking about this. And then while I was going to school, you, you see that a lot of people are carrying around like reusable bottles. I saw hydration stations and things like that for the first time. So I was like, okay, this is something that I might like, I might want to address, but it was like kind of scary. Yeah. You know what I mean? The whole concept of like, do I really want to put myself out there on this issue? Like I'm a younger kid, like, will we meet success with it or anything like that? And kind of just like how I met you just on like a chance thing, like we were both in the same place and it like linked up and now here we are. But I was talking to an administrative assistant for my department when I was at school one day and mentioned to her how I was interested in trying to do something like that, but hadn't really taken like any solid steps to do it. And she linked me up with this lady named Mary Sosinski, who's the executive director of EcoSlow. It's like the environmental stewardship program for San Luis Obispo. It's been running for over like 40 years. And I didn't even like know about it. So that's what I was talking about earlier with so many different nonprofits, like not really knowing how to like outreach to the community that well. Um, but either way, she linked me up with her. Mary linked me up with a few local like activists that would be concerned on the issue. And we started having like little roundtable meetings kind of consistently there got a little organized and then honestly over the course of two months just ran a campaign where I, I wrote a t like an online petition that generated a little over like 500 signatures. We made a tangible petition that we went down to farmer's market and like got signatures for and we met a good amount of success. That's what gave me a lot of confidence for it is there was not much opposition. Like I remember one farmers in the course of probably an hour I got a little over 100 signatures and I got one no. So I was like, okay, so if this, if this argument's framed right, it doesn't really meet opposition because all we're really trying to do here is just reduce unnecessary waste and advance a viable solution that we have like examples of success. And luckily San Francisco in March, 2014 had already put forward a measure for us to like run off as an wow. example as, as exactly they put forward the precedent. So I was like, all right, fuck it, like, let's, let's go. So I, I went into city council and like made that like pitch and the other people that were part of it, they were really, once again, oriented towards the ban itself. And it seemed like it really wasn't registering. And luckily I was the last person to speak for it. And I really pushed on the hydration station measure. And the mayor mentioned like, we have one actually like in like the city chambers, but there's not throughout the city. And so she like saw the utility of it. One of the councilmen mentioned, he's like, I think that element of this is really like why we should move forward with it. And then after I wrapped up, the fire chief walked up and he's like, that element, I think, is what like really drove it home. Because what, the, the hydration, hydration stations, station. because that's aiming for more of a cultural shift rather than telling people what to do. It's honestly saying like, OK, let's raise some awareness around the fact that this might not be right and then provide an actual solution. It, like if you're just telling people like you can't drink plastic water bottles, this conservative perspective is like you're trying to take away your freedom. Right. And it's just like, fuck, that's not the case, dude. It's just like, this is something we're going to have to address. You have to understand that up until like 89 plastic water bottles didn't even exist. Like we can get by without them. And now there's, there are things like hydration stations and like viable solutions that could actually provide a consistent water supply for us. Like, yeah, there's a little bit of sacrifice that might be made, but regarding the implications that if we carry on down a path where we are like not recycling around 38 billion bottles annually, we're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> Not to be grim about it, but like we just can't carry on with that. So that was that was what we got done in February. And I, I was pretty stoked on that because 
that seemed like such a far off thing where it was like, oh, is that really doable? And then it happened in a really quick like period. Like there was probably a year of thought, two months of action, and then it's like, and then it was agendized. And now in October, uh, the special project manager for the city, he's been laying out a proposal to see exactly what the city will do with it. And then we'll go in for a study session and we'll finalize it in October. But it's just pretty cool to see that like, man, what seems so far off and what for myself, like what I was telling myself at the time is like, man, like even if I die at a young age, but if I'm able to get that done to where like, I know I help like, like set a model in which like we're going to be limiting our societal waste and for other communities to follow, like I'll be satisfied. I mean, and, and that like is getting done, but there's also just still so much more to like do. So it's just moving on just like in skating or anything, just like to the next, next challenge, kind of the next goal. So for people who aren't, um, haven't really been exposed to the plastic issue i'd say you're hanging with someone at cal poly and they say why is plastic even an issue if i throw it in in the blue bin yeah why is that an issue uh so recycling itself i mean it's not as big of an issue as just like throwing it in the landfill or anything of that nature but you still need to think about the whole process you know what i mean like this isn't something that's natural it doesn't something that exists there's an there first off it's a petroleum-based product so, I mean, like, obviously the oil industry needs to sustain itself for plastic to, like, to carry on. And also with recycling, like, not to say it comes down completely to the economics because that's not entirely the case. But if a plastic product's not, like, really profitable to recycle, you got to understand that, like, these recycling facilities, like, have to, they, like, they have to operate on a profit margin. Like, they have to make money. So, recycling in itself is not the complete answer. And if you even think about that tagline... Like for recycling, what is it like? What does it really start with? Reduce and reuse, but we just forget about that. Like I, that didn't even really click with me until like a year and a half ago when I'm like, oh yeah, fuck. Like it's reduce, reuse, and then recycle is really like the last alternative. And I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just such a process to actually produce that plastic, to distribute it, and then the process of actually recycling it, the transportation necessities for that, to operate the facility, and then to like export that plastic and then for the whole process of like it's if you could just reuse something like this or reuse a canteen or even that plastic water bottle like two or three times you what you need to begin to think about is just outside of yourself like by you making a shift within like your behavior while it might seem so small that is part of the larger picture and the influence it might carry on to some friends like right now like at my work like no one even thought about like bringing water bottles and stuff like that before and everyone like every time they pour coffee they would grab one of the to-go cups but it's like you're fucking here like well, <laughs> you know what i mean like why don't you just use a mug now everyone's like using a mug or in our service station and things like that everyone has like a reusable water bottle with one of like our one with nature stickers on it now and it's just like cool like People are able to exert some influence by pointing out that like, hey, something we're doing might not be the best and like, this is kind of a direction, so. It's cool coming from you too. I mean, not to knock the dreadlock hippies, but if you're a dreadlock hippie, there are already so many hooks um, into what kind of person you are mm-hmm. that it's hard for people to listen mm-hmm. sometimes. I mean, you're a skater, outdoorsman, um, Young like iron worker, dude. yeah, you're iron worker, dude. <laughs> like, <But> like <laughs> welding stars on like, sheet yeah, metal. I mean, well, that's oh, it. Yeah, like, it's, when it's I was cool. When I was eleven, like, I mean, you and I were talking about earlier how people were like, "Oh, are you going to be vegan and stuff like that?" And it's like, no, the efforts I'm going to make realistically are like, I'm going to fish more and I'll probably hunt. 
Yeah. You know, we're like, we have this conservative element to us, which is why I like, I'm like, okay, I think we could actually meet a decent amount of successes with this because we have a message and a feel to us that's conservative enough that where there's a margin of acceptance that's far wider than an organization like the Sierra Club trying to advance what we do. Because it's like, when they do it, it's like, well, of course. But I mean, and that might, we might get that stigma relatively soon with our group one with nature because like, that's what we do. But at least when we go present or when we interact with people and build those relationships to make that change, we're not just being written off as these typical environmentalists. We're more just like, hey, this like norm that we have within our society is like, it's pretty irrational. It's going unquestioned. When we question it, these are like the illogical aspects of it. Like, let's address it. And here's some viable solutions. Here's people that endorse it. Like, let's get this done. The process of recycling is fascinating. I made a, a short, um, a mini documentary a few years ago about plastic um, in Hawaii. And um, it's one of those ones that, that it, it, it's almost like when you take a crap, it f- flush it down the toilet and you have no idea where it goes. And I think a lot of people have this idea that a plastic straw and a plastic bottle and a hard plastic Tupperware container will all be melted together and, and yeah. created this new this new project uh, product. And um, one of the most fascinating things I learned when I was doing that project is that if you turn over every piece of plastic, it There's has a number. a number on it. Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. the density number. So one, two, three, four, all the way up to I think like seven or eight. And supposedly only one through three can be recycled. Yeah, like a lot of... And, and they're recycled together. So mm-hmm. if you throw a straw in with a plastic bottle in with something else, chances are it's not going to be recycled. And I went to... Um, I, went, I was doing the story on Oahu. And there's this place on Oahu called Sand Island, um, which is out in Honolulu. Mm-hmm. And it's where they recycle everything from um, from Oahu. And it's cr- this crazy industrial building. And they have um, the big trash compactors, like from the mm-hmm. movie WALL-E, where it creates these big cubes. And they go into these cargo containers. And then they ship them off to other parts of the world. Like Hawaii will ship their trash off. Um, to China or all over the world, it's this massive industry where when you think of even like, oh, recycling, it doesn't get recycled on site. They'll no, ship like it around yeah, the world. And, and that's part of it. Is, that's I mean, part like, of there's it. the distribution that no one thinks about. It. Like, it's the process. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's a good answer when that waste is created. But to just avoid it in the first place, realistically, with the scaleless and consumption that's taking place, like, we should probably just move towards reusables. Yeah. We should probably just try and reduce our waste. But creating that cultural shift once it's established, like, think about it. Our culture and the way it functions, like, it's around convenience. You know what I mean? Like, for the yeah. most part, like, a straw, a water bottle, it's just like, oh, I can grab it, boom, it's done. It's out of sight, out of mind. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, it's going to get recycled. I don't have to think about it. But with, like I said, the scale that I just, it's just not feasible. But these aren't things that are being like thrown to us in the media. These aren't things that are being like really incorporated into our education. So for that reason, they're just not even really being talked about. Well, it's kind of been silently slipped in, right? Where you never yeah. had to make the decision. You just get the glass of water and the straws in it, and you don't really need to think about it. No, mm-hmm. that's nice. Cool. And it gets thrown away, and then you have no idea that it maybe is shipped halfway around the world where they have different recycling standards over there. And a lot of times recycling over there just means incineration, which yeah. then gives people carcinogenic diseases. I mean, you think recycling is bad in America. 
go to a place like Indonesia and see what their recycling plants look like. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, that's the biggest issue, right? Is it like, we're talking about San Luis Obispo, the middle of California, which is a global leader for environmental policies. And we're not even recycling that product. Right. And, and unfortunately you have all these developing countries now. I mean, you go down to Mexico, I'll take surf trips down to Mexico. They quadruple bag your groceries because it's this, it's almost like this first world, uh, standard of, standard life. of yeah. living, right? I mean, in, in Indonesia, forever, um, they would wrap up all of their packaging with banana leaves and they would throw it on the ground um, and it would biodegrade easily, yeah. right? But then overnight, all of a sudden, all these tourists started coming and then plastic was introduced and they still have those habits of throwing it on the ground and they haven't set up a lot of infrastructure for millions of people coming in. Not there, like, this is going to take hundreds of years to disappear. Right. <laughs> but it's, but on the flip side of it, I mean, when I was doing this story in Hawaii, like, <laughs> I went down into Haleiwa, where um, it's one of the main tourist hubs on the North Shore. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to all the business owners about what uh, kinds of, of people come in and ask for reasonable bags. And they're like, Japanese tourists come in because they all want the eco bag because in Japan right now it's cool for the eco bag so they're like oh eco bag you have eco eco bag bag. (laughs) yeah but it's just it's wild right like I think the theme through this this uh, conversation has been all about identity right like how you identify yourself is going to determine the decisions you make not necessarily Mm -hmm. the uh, the, the stats that you know about plastic you can morally know that it's wrong but if someone who you look up to is using it yeah, you don't care. It, you don't care. If that's the cultural norm, that's what everyone else is doing. I mean, there's environmental influence, but that's why I think St. Louis Obispo could be a powerful place. I do too. So what are you going to do? What's what's next to um, actually get plastic out of St. Louis Obispo? So right now, uh, we'll finalize that water bottle measure. We'll try and get that resolution passed for the straws. And then my friend, like I was telling you about earlier, Alex Hennigy, he is leading a compostable packaging company. So, and he, he's confident that he could produce every single product necessary by a food vendor or a restaurant, like regarding straw, regarding a to-go package, regarding the cups, anything that's going to be disposable, he knows that he can make with the PLA material, which is going to degrade within like 150, today, like 150 days and take that away from plastic. So being able to help him kind of further his brand is something that's pretty a huge goal of mine, especially since the way he set up his business model is for every piece of packaging material to say, please bring your own reusable. Um, Along with that, every package or cup or anything like that that's purchased through his company, a plant will be planted through a restoration group. So that's also just like a good way to appropriate revenue back for an actual like environmental cause. So help him further that and go really the direction of compostable while also pushing the concept of reusables. Now, part of the reason I also am so down for compostables is because Pismo Beach and San Luis Obispo are actually gonna move forward with the composting program. And I'm super stoked on that because they're actually going to use it to create biofuel. Now, I'm not super well versed on that yet. I'm going to get further into that as like we're necessary to do advocacy for it and to do marketing for the process. But like that is going to be one of the first facilities in the nation to do that. So for that reason, I'm super stoked. So I want to really push food vendors and things like that in the directions of compostables and lead away from plastic. Because I was telling you earlier how I also got like we, we were part of a styrofoam ban in two local communities. St. Louis Bandit, and then we got involved and we helped out with Pismo Beach and Arroyo Grande. Uh, Morro Bay also adopted it. We need one additional city in our county, and we can apply a countywide ban. But we're still working on that. But the thing is, with you ban styrofoam, and they're just like, okay, so we just bring in plastic. So it's like, ah. 
So if I we could actually get them to move forward with compost as a real alternative and get that established, that's where we could actually kind of operate somewhat of a zero waste system to where at least with that, like we could set up a system where that compost is also being picked up and then directly being delivered to those compost fields. And we're utilizing that for a purpose and we're not having all these products. The process of recycling, as you and I just kind of went through, is really intensive. So we're able to kind of sh slow that down a little bit. And then also we're using that compost for a purpose and to actually provide energy for us. Now it's not going to be a huge scale of energy, but we might as well do something like that rather than. What was it like visiting the dump? Tell me about that story. Oh, dude, so gnarly. I mean, when you really think about it, when we're just like, all right, we're just going to delegate this piece of land. Like our dump, it's not the most beautiful place, but it's in a really nice like place. Like Edna Valley is identified as this excellent area for wine tasting and like great vineyards and this beautiful countryside. And then just kind of like in the middle of it, there's Cold Canyon landfill and like like they just have these huge pits they dig into the earth and like dump trash into and like i get that's going to take place i'm not saying like, don't do dumps but it's like how can we slow our role with that and and seeing the scale of the waste that's actually out there and then going to the recycling facility was pretty damn cool just to see like what we've set up to process our waste like it, it's cool to see the innovation that's taking place for us to actually deal with it but at the same time it's like people aren't even recycling properly and like even okay so here here's one thing that i learned and maybe for anyone that's listening so like everyone that's like recycles at their house with a bin and then like takes the bag out and then puts all the recycling like into the recycle bin like realistically you need to not put it in with the plastic like trash bag like you just need to dump the recycling into the bin because those bags like they're gonna get caught up in all of the machinery that's processing everything. And then like they have to stop operations to pull those bags out and those bags themselves aren't even like being recycled. And at the, our local facility, plastic uh, like trash bags actually started a fire. So it's one of those things where like everyone will just fill like the recyclables like in a plastic trash bag and then just throw that in as one like unit. But that's actually not a, like a good thing. Wow. That was something I wasn't aware of. I had no idea. Yeah. So that was something that I learned recently, and it's like, that's kind of sucks because you know, for everyone that is recycling, they're just like, hey, you just, have the yeah, bag, and, I'm and there it is. But that's just a little I subtlety. Have that in my house, I had yeah. No idea. yeah, the wow. way I have, we have an open face one, like our trash can has a lid, but our our recycle bins like an open face ones, and so right. I just have the bag tight enough to it to where I can just. Just dump, dump it out, in. yeah. Because yeah. you can get some kind of scummy, like yeah. I mean, you might <laughs> quarter drinking beer. Yeah, in I mean, there. You, might, you might need to change the bag if it's relatively clean. I'll just like give it a quick spray or something. Like, yeah, but for the most part, that's doable. Yeah, and um, but you went in there uh, specifically to the dump, uh, looking at straws. So well, no, I, I was I had the concern for straws, but what I actually went there for is for the Cal Poly Zero Waste uh, and videos that we're going to be working on. So our local university and where I go is um, there was an o there was a measure put forward by Obama that I'm not like super well versed on, but it called for universities to reduce their waste stream by like 80% or to create 80% waste diversion by 2020. And so Cal Poly is moving forward with some solid zero waste initiatives. Like they put in zero waste stations throughout campus dining, throughout the library. And what that is, it's like three bins, like blues recycling, like greens land, land I mean greens compost and then browns landfill and it says like recycle compost landfill and then right above each section of that zero waste station has like the products that like would go in there so there's that kind of education purpose 
And then aside from that, they just want us to actually produce a video to educate the faculty and staff because there's like 3,000 people that are there long term. So they obviously want to educate them on the goals and what they're going to need to do to reduce their waste. And then also orientation videos for the student body. So out of that, we realized that it would be pretty powerful to actually go to the recycling facility itself to actually get an understanding of how much waste they process, the complications and the difficulties that they face with actually the waste aversion, with all the improper stuff that's going there. Dude, I, oh my God, it was gnarly. I saw a full on like brake rotor, like just in that, like people throw, there was a toaster yeah. bouncing around too. Like there's some just ridiculous shit that people like throw in recycling bins. If you ever want to do a fun little day outing, go to your local dump. Yeah. I, Cause I go, um, with my dad a yeah. lot because my dad's like the the flea market man oh, every yeah. saturday and sunday my dad goes to the flea market and he brings just brings stuff back and we'll fix it and um as a result we end up with a lot of shit and yeah. we have to take it to the dump every now and again but it's a wild experience going there and i would say the people who work at the dump are more as you might expect, more well-versed and educated on what should go where than mm -hmm. anything else, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, metal goes here, cardboard goes yeah, here. Yeah, it's all segmented out. Yeah, and most of us have no idea. Like, their messaging is so... I don't know. I think most in most cities it sucks because I feel like I'm pretty interested in this. And for me to not even know that plastic bags in the recycling bin was such a bad thing. You would. Um, but, but you can go to the dump also, and you can score... Mm -hmm. There's people always throw ridiculous things. people throw away Dude. ridiculous Actually, things. Actually, so what he showed, well, also people are recycling batteries, which is which is a pretty funny thing too, because like. He actually. Is, I knew that. Yeah. I knew batteries were, were he, no bueno. You throw those in the well, ocean. Well, right? I know, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> out there. He installed this magnet to where like they're they're capturing these batteries, but he just had bins full of them, and he's like, I didn't realize there was like this many, but since they installed that magnet, they're pulling so many. He also set up another one because they like occasionally would find pieces. Like he found out the guys in Modesto at their recycling facility set up a system to collect like gold and like precious metals. They pull in like over like 400,000 a year in precious metals with people throwing away like gold rings and necklaces and stuff like that. You'd be amazed the shit that goes into a recycling facility. Scrap metal too. Yeah. I mean, hey, did you, did you ever see the Vice doc on scrappers in Detroit? I have. So it's it's a it's a wild it's a wild later. story. Um so once all the industry left Detroit, um there's metals that China wants to use mm -hmm. um, for their industry as they're building. So a lot of the people now will go into you know like the old Ford factory and they'll they'll uh, you know, all the copper that lines the walls and that kind of thing. They'll take it off and they'll take it to scrap uh, centers and then um, they follow this one guy. He's he's a, a Chinese broker basically, and then he will get the scrap metal. Um, and you know, if there's something that industry around the world wants, they'll take it from Detroit, which is this really ironic story, it's, right? Yeah. Like the, the city that built America's auto industry scrapped. is now getting scrapped. And I'll bet you they use scrap metal at a lot of these, um, these dumps around here. Yeah, too. no, they, they do. They had a, they had a huge scrap metal pile. And either way, while, while, while I'm stoked that we're doing that, while I was able to go through, initially they shut us down because we went out there with the intention of being able to film for those videos that I'm talking about. But they shut us down initially, but since then I was able to work out terms to where we're going to go back out in like a week or two and be able to actually film their facility Why operating. Why they shut you down? Uh, just PR purposes. You know, I mean, they got to walk a fine line. 
Yeah. They got to walk a fine line because people do throw things in there that aren't supposed to be recycled. Like every now and then, maybe there's like medical waste or oh, something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like people. There's some that's a big shit one. There. Is sharps? Yeah. Is um, you know, if, if someone is a, a diabetic yeah. or I mean, needles and that kind of exactly. thing, it'll it'll get in there. So they can't sh- like if they had that like being shown or anything like that. Like if that went down, like that would just be best. So they're gonna have to like really kind of monitor like yeah. what we film and what we're able to put out later even then and that's not them like doing it they try and operate honestly on a very honest level and do it properly like the guys out there are straight shooters but for that reason they shut it down either way i was able to work out terms to where we're going to be able to go back out which i think is huge because we talk about all these issues but not many people are going to get to go on like a tour to the recycling facility and actually see the scale of waste like i was saying our local facility does 165 tons of waste a day but they do around like, you know those bales you were talking about where they compact them together? They do around 200 of those wow. in a day. Have you ever seen the documentary Wasteland? I have. It's so good. If you, if you ever check it out, um, you can get it on Netflix. And it's about um, this uh, dump. It's the largest dump in the world down in Brazil. And this famous Brazilian artist who does um, all kinds of modern art and sells his, uh, his art for hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. goes down into this dump in Brazil and um, tells the stories of the people who work at the dump because there's yeah. this whole community of people who separate the waste. But it's, I mean, like you think San Luis Obispo dump is crazy i mean this yeah. is like they find dead bodies in yeah. there all the time it's a it's another world but he then um takes the the um trash from there and he makes these huge uh like, like larger than life portraits yeah. of the people working there and um it's a beautiful documentary he then takes he then takes the um the art that they do um and sells it at a um, an auction in France, and all of the money that he makes, he gives to the people. These are like the kind of like untouchable, yeah. the untouchables of society. And there's a scene in the movie where he takes one of the guys um, who was part of the maybe um, worked his whole life at mm-hmm. the dump, takes him to the French auction, and he said like, "Okay, so this is your your portrait." And all the money that's raised at this auction, you get. Yeah. And it's like, 60,000 pounds, 70,000 pounds. And you just watch the just guy's like face, crying. like, life-changing exactly. amounts of money. That's beautiful. Yeah, but have Wasteland, you, you have to check I'll that. watch that. Uh, that while we're on that topic real quick, it triggered. Uh, it's not a documentary. It's, it's just a movie, but it kind of goes into that concept of the untouchables. Uh, it's called Trash. You should, it's, uh, it's on Netflix. Okay. Um, it's about kids in Brazil that go through this really gnarly this really gnarly process and you should watch it. it's called trash dude oh, it was like one of the better films i've seen recently because i don't like i don't really watch many i don't have a tv or anything like that but like right before we like like last set our xbox and tv i watched trash and was like that's one of the better films i've seen i'm fascinated by those kinds of stories whether it be trash or the underworld of our society yeah. that we do not see mm-hmm. uh, like everything from, I mean, there was a, a story I saw just the other day that um, Seeker Network did about uh, the people who live in the sewers underneath Las Vegas. And there's this whole kind of community of homeless people that live in the sewers underneath the, the bright light strips. Um, and just those fascinating stories it, of things that we don't see. The intense separations that exist also within society. Like, I mean, even in D.C. where it's just like White House here, Trap House here, like within right. like walking distance. It's, it's, it's interesting. Right. One of the murder capitals of America is yeah. D.C. 
Yeah, it's but I mean it's just gnarly to see those those two extremes. I mean Vegas with just a community of people living in sewers, like it's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, you should watch that movie Trash because it like it's just like three friends that go through this really gnarly like battle. Kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, just going through struggle and being willing to be able to like sacrifice so much for like a purpose. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So you're getting uh, plastic in slow mm -hmm. um band that's one of your, yeah, we're your main things we're working on the we're working okay. on that working, working on to advance compost uh working on this orientation video to kind of educate people about zero waste that's yeah. why i'm super stoked is because like so right now like say if you go to cal Poly or anything like that like you have to go through a training for like sexual assault and you have to go through one for like uh like drinking alcohol you know what I mean? Just to do it responsibly. Like there's like a two hour course you have to do like before every year starts where you just like Cal Poly can say like they trained yeah. you within this area. So you're not going to like, like when you can't see straight, it's time to stop. Yeah. Drinking. Like drink responsibly, do it in this manner. And then also the whole sexual consent thing. Like they just make sure that like they're providing with education to kind of cover their asses, but that's what they're going to begin doing for their like waste diversion programs. Oh, that's and cool. that's what we're producing for them. So that's what we're pretty stoked on. What's the, is the video going to be with your yeah. company, one with nature? It's going to have our branding cool. in it. Yeah. So, I'm so where can people go to check out one with nature, one with nature.org? Just one with nature um, one with nature code yeah and that's your company you make t-shirts but really it's a platform yeah, to yeah awareness. exactly like t-shirts are more just like okay like what is that and then that could even start a conversation of what we're trying to accomplish on a larger goal and just more of a presence in the community so as we introduce more you know as we get developed concepts for other systems that might raise revenue for environmental stewardship or to take on some creative projects that we have in mind it's just this is just the brand yeah. you know what i mean it's just the larger like okay that's what their mission is and then these are all the little extensions and things that they do that's behind it and right now i mean as scrappers kids in college like yeah all you can really do is make some shirts bum ba -dum bum we made it through another one my friends be sure to get in touch with Corey on the socials say what's up if you like this podcast, once again, please give it a rating on iTunes. Share it with a friend. Until next time, have a fantastic day.